Soft edges and washed out colors. Those rolling bars and snow that would distort the image. Over a decade after being declared a dead technology, the look of a VHS is still instantly recognizable. But more than an aesthetic, the rise of the VHS fundamentally changed our relationship to film. No longer confined to television or rep houses, movies could be purchased, paused, and replayed 24-7. In this episode of the podcast, with the help of two former video store clerks, we consider the bygone era of VCRs, without getting too soppy or cynical about it. Hello and welcome to the Film Comet Podcast. My name's Violet Luca. I'm the digital editor, and today I'm joined by... Nicholas Rapold, editor of Film Comet. Michael Koreski, editorial director at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Kent Jones, editor-at-large and director of the New York Film Festival. Thank you all for coming. At the end of July, at the Funai plant in Japan, the last VCR rolled off the line. And uh, this isn't going to be sort of one of those only 90s kids will remember this sort of a podcast. But we have people here of different ages who have lived through different formats when, you know, when it was only television, when it was only VHS, and then when it was a combination of that and DVD. Sort of want to talk about not just how formats have influenced cinephilia and how films are consumed and people's relationship to them, but also talk about on a personal level, what films maybe you collected as, you know, throughout these different formats, which ones made the transition, which ones didn't. But Kent, you worked at the first video store, the first dedicated video store in Manhattan. It was the first dedicated video store in Manhattan. Yeah, it was on McDougal Street between Bleecker and Houston. No, Western and Bleecker, sorry. Okay, yeah. And it was a walk down. And it was new video, and it was that was the first store, and then they started an empire. They opened up on University Place. That was the big store. And then all over the place. And they pioneered prepaid rentals in the form of video checks, things like that. It was started by a couple guys named Steve Savage and Michael Pollock. It was a wild place. I mean, Why was it know. wild? It, let me think about what, how I had to answer that. <laughs> no, I mean, you was know, it the real estate? Was it sort of a real estate question? Uh, the, well, the no, not at all. I oh. mean, it was no. It was a very different kind of neighborhood back in those days. But it was wild in a, a few senses. One was that you know, since we were the only game in town, and since people were very into the idea, you know, the customers were, you know, there was like. Julian Schnabel, David Byrne and Jerry Harrison, Cindy Sherman, Robert Longo, Rauschenberg sent an assistant in for movies. Schrader dropped in one day to buy, you know, a copy of one of his own movies as a birthday present for the actress that starred in it. <laughs> Things like that, you know. Um, sometimes people would come in and, you know, say, hey, can I trade you a couple lines for a rental? You know, I mean... Um, lines of poetry, right? Lines of poetry. <laughs> and, and, you know, it was a heady atmosphere, let's just say. So this was like 1982, right? This was 1982. I think that the store opened in 1981, and Steve, who, you know, as I said, was the founder of, and who turned new video into a distribution business afterwards, um, had a very bright idea, which was to go to NYU film students and hire them. So you would get people coming in, you know, things would come out like six months after they'd been released theatrically, sometimes a year, actually. It was much, yeah. it was slower, obviously. And... You know, let's say Sophie's Choice came out, so you'd get like, you know, 10 copies of it. People would reserve them, they'd all be gone, so then you'd have people coming in the day, you know, for the weekend. Do you have any copies of Sophie's Choice left? You say, well, no, but let me recommend this uh, film to you, The Silent Partner with Elliot Gould and Susanna <laughs> York. Um, <laughs> that was our big fallback movie, and we did very well with it. That was the big sleeper. <laughs> And finally, it's a terrible movie, but back in those days, it seemed like a lot of fun. Christopher Plummer mm. as, a, as a, you know, Santa Claus-dressed bank robber. Right. Give me the money, fucker. <laughs> I, I, it's an awful <laughs> movie, but it was just, you know, it was a movie that, that we got a lot of mileage out of. Bleaker Bob was around the corner. He'd always come yeah. in and say, like, oh, you got any film noir? You know, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it was, it was, like, a lot of fun. Was there actually, like, a staff pick section, or was that... The whole place was a staff picked section. I mean, <laughs> and as a matter of fact, one of the people who you know I worked with became a porn specialist. Is that what they? By call the way, it? Yeah. 
Yeah. No, no it's that, that, then know. that went mainstream. I guess. No, I mean, and, and and that's a whole other topic. You know, I mean, porn was basically that really drove the business. I mean, it was like, you, you got caught all. from behind too. So even Did from the very beginning, that yeah. was the, Wait, no. no, no. I mean, because that was the yeah. It just, it, okay. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, as yeah, with yeah. all great new technologies, porn really yeah, makes it, it go. <clears throat> I mean, look at anything, any old fucking thing, but, um, so to speak. So it was like, <laughs> it was a very, yeah. And, and I mean, that was a whole, that was a whole thing, but he was, there was a, there was a book called, I, I lost it at the video store that was recollections and Nicole mm-hmm. Holofstein was in there. And she actually mentions the fact that she and I worked together and she was actually dating the guy who was the porn specialist. And she said, and then I worked with Kent Jones. He's the director of the New York film festival shows you how bright I was, you know, or something like that. That'd be a nice <laughs> little compliment, but you know, she was, <laughs> Um, Laura Hirschberg worked there. She's now like, she's a brilliant sound designer and mixer at um, Skywalker. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, it was exciting too, um, yeah. having, you know, all that activity there um, on that street. But it was before that area was strictly speaking just a tourist, right. you know, destination and nothing else. It was a real neighborhood. Now mm-hmm. it's, it's a neighborhood, but of a different of a different type. Yeah, it's part of the NYU campus. Yeah, and the Bleecker Street Cinema was around the corner, right. and Provincetown Playhouse was up the street, and it was you know they were doing real productions there. It wasn't just an NYU holding. So right. yeah, well, different world. Well, Nick, you grew up in New York. Could you talk about the video store near you, that sort of scene, or how you your entree to that? World? Um, well, my 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 story is is a story of. Many cinephiles, I guess. But no, I mean, I, I, it was Kim's. I went to Kim's, not when I was in uh, high school, I'd say, more after high school. And I went to the Mondo Kim's on St. Mark's, and I would always go there and, and rent as much as I could every single time I would go. But this is where it was like a dollar for a day yeah. rental. <laughs> so if you were insane and had too much time on your hands, you could rent through things, try to watch them in a day, save money, and go the next day and get the next one for a day. So I did that a lot. Um, and there was the Godard section that said God. Yes. Yes, yes. I remember that. Yeah, it did say God. Um, and, and actually, I also went to the, that reminds me that that's what it also said in the bleaker Kim's, Kim's Underground. I went to that a lot as well. Which is actually the same building that used to be the Bleecker Street Cinema, Bleecker Street Cinema, mm-hmm. and is now a historic Dwayne Reed oh, um, yes. or something like that. <laughs> it's funny because Dwayne Reed is actually a New York institution it because is. originally on Dwayne and Reed Streets. Yeah, well, that's the curious thing about uh, gentrification is that Barnes and Noble used to be a bad guy because right. it would run out independent bookstores. Now you're happy if there is a Barnes <laughs> yeah. and Noble so that there is a bookstore exactly. somewhere. Yeah, that was my Kim's experience. I still have my last receipt from the last day of when Mondo Kim's closed. So, and I was there. And, you know, the next sad. episode is going to be a hoarder's intervention. <laughs> wow. <laughs> For you. You're allowed to have mementos, I think. What was the last thing you rented? It was The Long Day Closes, actually. Oh. Wonderful choice. And the day before, I think I got this giant, chunky bootleg of Ronaldo and Clara yeah. <laughs> that they had. It's all there is. Yeah. <laughs> Michael, you also worked at a video store in New York. I did. Um, so uh, it was during college. I went to NYU 97 to 2001. So the Kims were all still there. And I remember the Bleecker Street Kims. That was the one that was closest to campus. So that's the one that I went to the most. That was the underground. It was really fun, all the different sections. I never worked at Kims, though. I worked at the video room, which remains on the Upper East Side. Yes. But it is one of the earliest video stores mm-hmm. in Manhattan. And we didn't have an illustrious staff <laughs> like Kim's, but we had an illustrious clientele. I mean, Woody Allen was a member. Of course, he only got delivery. Um, he oh, never yeah. came in. That's such a funny concept, delivery. Yeah, and, and, I, and I believe it was also one of the first video stores that delivered along um, after a new video. Um, but, yeah, James Woods was a customer. Wait, wait, can we go back to Woody Allen? <laughs> what did Woody Allen rent? Oh, I don't know the actual titles of things. Certainly not his own movies, <laughs> unlike James Woods. <laughs> um, but it was it was a really fun place. You had to take a quiz to get it. I, I think a lot of NYU film kids were also targeted to get mm-hmm. jobs there. Yeah, I had to do a film quiz to get in. It was like, it wasn't a particularly difficult one. It was like, you couldn't get the job unless you named five Bergman Who's films on the top of your head. Oh, okay. Name five Kurosawa. Yeah, things like that. Yeah. And yeah, it was, I would say it was a really fun staff. Nobody I named there 
from there you would recognize. And that's good because one of them had a nervous breakdown and thought that he was making Ghostbusters 3 mm. and had to actually be institutionalized, mm. which is kind of an amusing and sad way to go. Yeah. Um, and I'm prophetic. curious what he thinks about the, the, <laughs> the reboot. <laughs> but yeah, it was great. It was thrilling. It, it, this was like 99 to 2001 so we also had a go-to recommendation that was an older film if if someone came in and they wanted a film and it wasn't there we always recommended the movie dead of winter with mary steenburgen <laughs> and they always the <laughs> it became an inside joke God. but they always loved it really always loved it because it's also a pg thriller right. and that goes over well with everybody it's in a tourist film i don't um, remember who directed it who directed it? oh that's an arthur took it over at right? the last minute I just remember when I was young, I, I rented the videotape, and I remember there's a scene where Mary Steenburgen's finger is, is cut off, and that was mm. the height of sophisticated terror when you're, <laughs> when you're a seven-year-old, or apparently when you're a, at any age, and you go to the video room. It's, it's, it's the movie to beat. Having those resources available to you, did it change? Did it broaden? Or did it challenge or change your viewing habits in a way that they hadn't been before? Or was it just sort of like, now I've got the keys to the kingdom? Well, I mean, I'm the only one old enough here to remember before there were any videotapes whatsoever. Right. And, you know, I mean, seeing a movie was either you had to figure out when it was playing on TV and schedule your time or, you know. I mean, I happened to grow up in, a, in an area that had some pretty good selections you know there was a place called Wheatley you know this is in the Berkshires and so like the, they had a theater there called Toad Hall and it was like the crummiest theater on earth but they showed great movies they had a little film bookstore there it's where I bought my first copy of Manny Farber's book I mean you know it's mm -hmm. like I was fortunate in that sense but the other thing is you know I remember when my girlfriend's cousin was taping movies with a three-quarter inch helioscan machine, you know, in the late 70s. And, you know, here's a copy of Dark Star by John Carpenter. Mm -hmm. You know, and then first there was, it was, it was beta and VHS, and beta was supposed to be the, the superior format. And, I mean, I realized right away that viewing was now something different. Mm -hmm. That it was, you know, a film was now an object. And that you could, you know, I remember a guy coming in, you know, and saying, uh, okay, I want to settle in for the weekend. You know, it's going to be a cold weekend, so you can you give me something nice and, you know, luxurious that I can sink into, like the Godfather films. That was, you know, and so that was interesting. I mean, it was like a, a different way of thinking about um, stuff. You could stop it and start it. You could, mm -hmm. you know, get up and go to the kitchen and come back and, you know, replay it and blah, blah, blah. That really gave people a different sense of movies. It also changed film scholarship, obviously. Mm -hmm. There was no more... Raymond Durniak could no longer, you know, identify a scene from the Philadelphia story as a prime example of, you know, the art of Howard Hawks. Um, that just wasn't, that kind of mistake wasn't permissible anymore. <laughs> and so, um, Well, I mean, as someone who lived here in the early 80s, um, did you sort of participate in what Jay Hoberman and Jonathan Rosenbaum referred to as the midnight movies phenomenon? And did you see how that sort of changed? Because when they revisited that concept, maybe like, 10 years after the book was originally published, they said, well, VHS kind of killed this. Yeah, I, I think that that's true. And it, but that was something that I certainly didn't participate in it here. Mm. I, well, no, that's not true. I think I went to see a midnight show of Fingers that James Toback came out and <laughs> spoke at 2 o'clock in the morning after it was over. The, there was a theater on St. Mark's, on 3rd Avenue around the corner from St. Mark's Place called the St. Mark's Cinema mm -hmm. that would show the very strange double bills. Like, you know, The Shining and Three Stooges shorts and things that you were just like, <laughs> how did that happen? You know, it's just like, what happened awesome. to come in that week? You know, yeah. and so, because it didn't feel like it was programmed or anything. Anyway, um, I didn't, but I didn't do Rocky Horror up there, but it made the rounds. I did it once in my own, in my hometown. And then all that stuff, like Harold and Maude, the stuff that Bruce Goldstein is doing now, the double features, you know, right. you just did Harold and Maude and Where's Papa um, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, you did have the midnight shows, like... Rocky Horror, Putney Swope, I guess. I don't, I don't remember what else. Greaser's Palace, you know. I mean, yeah. That Eraserhead. Eraserhead, for sure. And that did really kill that. Mm -hmm. I worked at the Village Voice as Tom Allen's um, intern when he was. He had this column called Revivals in Focus. And Tom died in 1988. By that time, there was basically no more reason for a column. Mm -hmm. 
I haven't gone to a midnight movie in a really long time. I used to go to some of them during college, but even at that point, it, it, it felt like they were supplemental to the the, the home viewing experience as mm-hmm. opposed to its own thing. I mean, the movies mm-hmm. that they program now are just nostalgia movies. I mean, if well, you go to a midnight movie in New York, it's probably going to be The Breakfast Club. There's no such thing as a midnight movie anymore. For the 50,000th right. time. At Hobo, <laughs> because it has the idea or mystique of being a midnight right. movie as opposed to actually being one anymore. Yeah. It's it's people want to, it's almost like, it's like drive-in movies or something. It doesn't oh. really exist anymore. Oh, totally. No, I completely agree. Yeah. Mm. I went to an Eraserhead midnight movie. I guess I was just living in the past. <laughs> this is in the past year. Well, I, I went to, when I saw um, Inland Empire, because I, I was living in Iowa at the time, I had to drive up to Chicago and I went to the Music Box Theater and it was a midnight screening and it started blizzarding while we were waiting outside and we had to wait like an extra 20 minutes because the Q&A for the screening before that went over. And then we ran into the theater to try to get the best seats possible and then David Lynch came on stage. All the lights went down except for this bright red light, this blood red light, and he read from the Bhagavad Gita while some organ music played. Play oh. No trumpet. No. You had a trumpet when you introduced it here. Uh, <laughs> well, they had an yeah. organ, so yeah. why not? If you go for the bigger instrument. but yeah. So what time did it actually start? It started like 1230. And mm-hmm. then I, I really, the first time I saw it, like I remember I saw it and then I just had no memory of it. It was like it never it works. It works for that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. So I was like, oh, yes, I have to watch it again. Mm-hmm. Speaking about that experience, these are all sorts of like, New York memories where it's like the world is really there for you. Or if you're watching television in New York, the programming on Channel 13 is probably going to be more challenging than the programming on a PBS station outside of New York. Or there are multiple public access channels where you could sort of show weird shit. Do you feel like, you know, sort of talking with people who haven't sort of been enmeshed in that how fertile like a place like New York is for consuming that media. Do you feel a difference in the types of films that they would sort of consume growing up or not? What you're saying is, is it made me think of something as well. You know, a lot of your movie education will be watching the late movie, you know, or just, right. or watching um, stuff even on, on black and white and television and something like Dave Kerr always writes about just being able to, you just plowed through tons and tons of titles that you're seeing that are being rebroadcast on television. And I'm kind of wondering how that experience compares with people who were just going to the video store and, and that was how they were, you know, seeing a ton of stuff that way. Mm-hmm. And, and what titles or what directors were kind of able to surface more or get a, maybe a new following, a new reputation through video stores, you know, right. versus... I don't know, on TV or something. Yeah, because it's, it's not just like a question of the canon, but it's just like a question of like availability yeah. and like yeah. what is actually important to you and what is like the gateway into this for you. Yeah, I don't know. It depends on who's behind the counter or depended on mm-hmm. who's behind the counter. Mm-hmm. You know, what they were bringing to the interaction, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, I mean, New York is, was a very, very, very different place. Than from what it is now, and when Patty Smith is saying, "If you're young today, don't come to New York," I, you know she's can't disagree with her because it's like, where are you going to live, and what are you going to live on? I mean, yeah, there was Uncle Floyd, and there was you know all this cable channel stuff, and there was the detritus of an old and you know slowly aging popular culture. There was the Joe Franklin show, and that stuff was beloved by people like you know um, Jim Jarmusch, and you know I mean. But that's the way it always is. It's a continuum. There's never there are never any breaks, really. And so, I just remember it being fertile, and there was a lot of junk culture that was converted into filmmakers like Nick Zed, you know, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, the performance art scene was very vibrant. And then you know there was the psychotronic cinema idea, which started sometime in the eighties. Kim's had a psychotronic section, yeah. didn't it? Yeah. And so, you know, I, I never, remember I never Can you define that? Well, you know, that's the thing. What does yeah. it mean? So it's some it's sort of like that Jim Hoberman slash industrial movie slash, you know, lower end of pop culture unnoticed slash termite art slash thing that was kind of, you know, redefined. And so I remember, for instance, uh, looking there and pulling a movie off the shelf one night and renting it at Kim's. And uh, it was called The Sinister... No, no, no. The Something Urge. And it was with Harold Lloyd Jr. Mm. 
And he was a guy who got excited whenever he heard a fire truck and he would run and follow it. That was the, it was made in the late forties. It was astonishing. Or maybe the fifties. I can't remember. It was just, it was astonishing. It was the something urge. It wasn't the sinister urge. That was another one of these movies, but there were these little tiny video companies that would market stuff that way. There was a video company called sinister cinema that would get 16 millimeter prints from, you know, the whole, the 16 market and do, you know, transfers and, you know, and then I got into that whole thing from another angle when I worked in Martin Scorsese's office as his video archivist because I was ordering all that stuff and mm -hmm. I was in touch with all those companies and there was the Chicago company that did the Nazi movies. Yes. I mean, it was just like, it was, it was a, <laughs> yeah. all that stuff. Not was, facets. Not facets. They did not Close sounds similar. <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, you know, there was a company that would do Hope for Kong by Vite Harlan, Kohlberg and all that stuff and then it turned out that they were like, they had a very sinister pedigree. Found that out a little bit later. Oh, um, I, when I when I think about the difference between New York culture and being elsewhere, I mean, for me, it really has to do with uh, the community around it. I mean, I didn't. I grew up a cinephile. I, mean, I didn't know that word when I was a little kid, but I was a movie lover from a very early age. But it was it was very isolating. Um, I was going to the library every week and getting four movies from the Westford Library and going to the Chelmsford Library and getting four movies from that library and going to Blockbuster and getting what I could from there. And Video Thunder was the local yeah. <laughs> was the local video store. And there was East Coast Video and then there was West Coast Video. There were all different mm -hmm. stores and I would just go to as many as I could and see as many things as possible. At the same time, it was just me doing my own research, investigating things, having nobody to talk to about them. I, I grew up... I had friends, but nobody cared about movies the way I did, and I would always try to push movies on them. So going to college, coming to New York, it was the first time people were pushing movies on me. Mm -hmm. And so having a place like the Bleecker Street Kims, the Kims Underground, or, or and we'd go to the St. Mark's that were so close to the NYU campus was, was amazing. It was a revelation. It was more important than whatever they were showing us in the classes, right. frankly, because um, it's a sense of um, get, getting to watch the things that you realize, oh, wait, I'm supposed to watch these things. Like, I didn't see a Jarmusch movie until I came to New York. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't really see early Cronenberg movies until I came to New York. I didn't really get into horror very much until I came to New York. You know, that, because there's something about sharing movies and talking about movies and being part of a community that, that changed that isn't experience. That, but isn't that also sort of like going to college, like the act of sort of like leaving home? Definitely, but it just so happens that my college experience was in the village in New York. Right. So it made a really big difference having those video stores there and having these like-minded cinephile types. But I really do think that, that the fact that it was New York made a difference because we, we had these accessible films. You had the psychotronic section. I never went to the psychotronic section. I, don't, I still so don't know tame. what that is. <laughs> there was a book. Oh. Yeah. Dictionary yeah, of Psychotronics. Yeah, I think or directory or something. Yeah. Bullshit like that. <laughs> um, you know, I remember when I got to NYU, um, I went to NYU as well. Best professor I had by about 10 miles was Noel Carroll. Oh. And Noel taught the introduction to Aesthetics of Cinema, which is an introductory course, and then sat down. And the first film that he showed was Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I was just like, well, I'm, I'm, I know I'm in New York now. You know? <laughs> and um, it, was, um, it was a very bracing experience. Because he just opened up that, I mean, that gesture alone just kind of like opened everything up wide. I wish I had had him. I actually read the Noel Carroll book as part of a syllabus in my freshman year of college, uh, Philosophy of Horror, Philosophy of Horror, which is an yeah. incredible book. Yeah. And I saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre the first time as a freshman in college. So I actually had Noel Carroll was very much in my orbit as well, though I never met him. Mm. But he was actually very important to me, too. He was a, a great teacher, and he was also very important because back in those days, I mean, he really, when everybody was very, very involved, you know, or a lot of people were very involved in the whole Lacanian screen, psychoanalysis slash Marxist idea of, mm -hmm. you know, he really just handily sliced right through it, and um, probably not soon enough, <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, he was a real inspiration. Great yeah. teacher. So, Michael, you were there for the transition between VHS and DVD, somewhat, in, like, actually working there. Would mm -hmm. you, did mm -hmm. you sort of feel, did you get a sense at the time that there was sort of, like, a change? Or was, did you sort of feel maybe more, like, a skepticism about the format or just people weren't into it? 
Um, as rentals, it was a big change, and just for a very particular obvious reason, which is that everybody brought them back and said these won't play because fingerprints and smudges got on them. Ugh. It was just it, people wanted to buy DVDs but not rent them, and people thought that because of that, the DVD rental business was potentially uh, nothing. Mm. Um, and that was really a that was a thing. It was it was almost constant. I think it was because people weren't trained yet to know how to, to handle them. But I mean, CDs. everything came back with fingerprints and smudges and scratches all over them. I mean, we would have to replace DVDs constantly. This was like 90, yeah, 90, 98, 99 is when DVDs came on the market. And then we really only started introducing them as rentals a little bit at a time. It was still, the video, it was a video store. It was still almost all VHS with a tiny little DVD section that was obviously slowly growing. By the time I left, I left in early 2001, I guess. It, it was wasn't. reversed. Right. I mean, it, it, not quite. It was getting there. Yeah. It was getting there. Um, but it was yeah, fun. it was a problem. It was quick. Mm-hmm. I mean, can I say that there were two other transitions, though? Sure. One is LaserDiscs, which is a uh, format yes. that not that many people had, but that was, you know, available. And it was somewhat more of a collector's market than Blu-rays, but oh, yeah. it was it was very much a thing. And that also dovetails with another transition, which is the growing prevalence of letterboxing. Because that really, of course, all this is before the days of widescreen TV, which, you know, was what we have now. And so I remember the first letterbox film, unless I'm mistaken, on VHS was Manhattan by Woody Allen. And I, the bands on the top and the bottom were gray rather than black. And I remember I brought it home and I was watching it with my father. And he, he saw it and he looked at the TV and he went up to it and he kind of <laughs> you know, banged the, the, the side of it. He said, what the hell's wrong? You know, he said, well, that's what's called letterboxing dad, you know, or something like that. And he said, oh, it looks like, I feel like I'm looking through Venetian blinds. <laughs> and, you know, he wasn't wrong in the sense that you're looking at a TV and a degraded image to begin with. And P.S., that's yet another transformation, which mm-hmm. is to a better and better image. But that's why Stanley Kubrick didn't care about letterboxing. He cared more about height with right. TV rather than width. Um being the iconoclast that he was, but you know, I got I got his point. Letterboxing kind of became the first way to, to, to kind of stand out from the pack as a young cinephile, right? Oh, if you yes. knew what letterboxing was, you could explain it to your friends and say, like, no, this is how movies are supposed to be. Yeah. Right. And that's how you could explain it. I remember the first the first letterbox film I ever saw was The Color Purple. It was a very early VHS. Mm-hmm. Spielberg demanded that it was letterboxed, so it had this explanation that came up on screen first and it even had a little demonstration of mm-hmm. the movie before the movie started. Mm-hmm. And it it was there it was, was nothing it, wrong it with took it. a while. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember when DVDs would come dual layer with the widescreen side and then the um, letterbox side. Oh yeah, and yeah. that was it. Was always oh. such a pain that because especially like in the early days of DVD, it would take so long for it to actually get going, and then it'd be like, oh shit, I put it on the wrong side. I still have <laughs> one of those. I mean, because I have my DVD collection. Obviously, I still pride of you know place on my shelf. But my Before Sunrise DVD, mm-hmm. I know because it's a movie I watch fairly fairly often. So. I that's the one I know. Like, make sure you put it on the right side. <laughs> God, if it starts and it's not letterbox, I get really mad. Yeah. Do you have any letterbox memories? Yeah. No, I, I I don't know. Do you have laser disc memories or other? Yeah, I have. I still have stuff. a couple laser discs. I don't know why. Is, no, because there is. I know. Stuff I don't know what to do with them. On Criterion, that yeah. Criterion put out as laser discs certain special features. I think yeah. specifically like some Wells. I have a Wells things. movie. I can't remember which one I ended up the, keeping. But it I never. Yeah, oh, you like, mean Othello? Well, the, well, there Othello, was Othello. The Othello laser disc was. You know, the soundtrack of Othello has always been problematic. And mm-hmm. so it's like when Wells' daughter Beatrice had it re-released and it was restored, the score was re-recorded. Mm. And there was never a transcription of it, or the transcription was lost, mm. the musical transcription. So it was kind of like By ear. based on some composer listening to it and notating it. And, oh. you know, so the... Um, First Criterion Laserdisc is the original score. I think there are also certain like radio excerpts too on the cri- uh, some anyway, but there are certain things that really still only are on Laserdisc. Well, there was also CAV, which is you know CAV Laserdiscs. You're syncing frame by frame, mm. which is something that's lost with DVD and Blu-ray. Well, well and often when Criterion, you know, they had these films, they lost the licensing to yeah. them as they transitioned to DVD. A lot of those licenses are coming back from the studio, so when they get these titles back, they mm-hmm. often go back to their Laserdiscs and they extract those supplements and they put them on the DVDs mm-hmm. and Blu-rays. Yeah, I still think it's interesting thinking back on. We had a Laserdisc player in the house, but we only had a handful of them. 
obviously they were more expensive than you could get used VHS is cheap, but still like you could tell that when you bought a laser disc, it was going to be a special movie. Right. Whereas we were pretty, you know, non-discriminating when it came to VHSs. We would just have shelves and shelves and shelves of, of movies on tape. Mm-hmm. But the laser disc section was very, very tiny and you know that those were the special films. So it, it also was the sense of um, you know, format having something to do with quality. Uh, it, you and know, as an object. And and definitely as an object. Yes, yeah. they were very handsome objects. Right. Yeah. So I had any hall on Laserdisc, you know, or I had I had safe on Laserdisc actually because that meant a lot to me mm-hmm. in the nineties. They were kind of analogous to like a nice album cover in a way, just the aesthetic yeah. of, of the cover and, and well, that was the size. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. You could ripple through them the way that you would yeah the through albums. Way. Yeah. Well, and because they 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 had less to answer to in terms of the market, so they could make really beautiful, more abstract-looking covers. So, like, actually, the safe videotape cover is ridiculous, and the safe Laserdisc is amazing, the cover. Um, I forget what the safe video cover is. It's it's, it's this weird glowing box where Jillian Moore is is kneeling, and she has, you know, like an oxygen tube in her nose, and she's looking all confused. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Whereas the Laserdisc has that that strange man all in white kind of prancing across the lawn. Um, It's just a very different way of presenting the Mm -hmm. film, and you could tell even then, which is what Criterion obviously has gone on to do so well. It's funny because... I know we've talked about this anecdotally, but just how many, like having that experience of walking through a video store as a child and being afraid or afraid and attracted to different videos based on their covers and how that's just such a weird lost thing now. Yeah. I do wonder how, how younger generations, um, if they understand that, that concept that this, it's probably not the best way of doing it right, but you're judging these films in a sense or, or, or fearing them or being attracted mm-hmm. by them by looking at the, the video box. Uh, I mean, the horror section, of course, is like the most dramatic right. version of that. I was, I, when I went to my first video store when I was really young, it was Video Paradise, and I was fascinated by the horror section. I think as a lot of, a lot of curious kids are, and I would go there and I would sort of you know, decide, okay, I'll never see that. It's too scary or I want to see that. And then I would ask questions to the woman behind the counter what these films were. And it was kind of like a secret relationship we had between each other. And then as I got older, I would try to watch one every so often. But yeah, I mean, that the cover art is, was essential to like one's understanding of mm. what they wanted to see or didn't want to see. Right. I, I remember, um, so there were multiple places. There was Mr. Movies near me which is very straightforward, Mr. Movies. And then there was also, you could rent, uh, for a long time, you could rent VHS and DVDs at the supermarket near me. Yeah. And they were like squished down, yeah. like little tags you would take off. And it was like, it was so, I th- now thinking about it, it's so weird. And obviously that section of the supermarket has flowers now or something, but it's it, which is really kind of sad. But it's, it is interesting to try to think through as our relationship to physical media is changing or even just like buying things period has really completely changed and continues to completely change where you just look at an image on your computer and then you say well, yes well you also get user reviews and, and user you get al- you have algorithms people are telling yes. people are telling you what you're supposed to watch based on other things you've purchased or based on other things you've looked at yeah. and so it you these decisions are being made for you as opposed to just this instinctual thing this, this or, sense of discovery or so having mm-hmm. someone across the counter be like maybe you should try this as opposed, yeah, and completely right. without an algorithm and completely in relation to their own experience. Which or, is a really interesting change because yeah. because it kind of coincides with this sense of, like, it's the social media world, which has made people desperate self-branders. Oh, right? totally. So everybody thinks that they have to define themselves in some way. And this is what sets me apart. And this is what makes me mm-hmm. special. Call me crazy, but I like Megamus and Amberson. It's like that kind of thing. It's like that's what almost every tweet is like. Right. I'm a little nuts, but I, I mean, I saw one today where somebody was listing their like seven favorite movies and they said, I sure am interesting and weird. It's like, no, these are the same seven movies that everyone else likes. <laughs> I mean, it, that's, that's how it is. So it's funny that that has coincided with this culture of being told what you're supposed to like. I will say this quickly, anecdotally, another another interesting aspect to think about is that in relation to sort of self-branding, you know, in the gig economy, people who do perform certain services like drive an Uber or, you know, have an Airbnb, 
they have to sort of self-brand. There's this forced politeness that comes into these interactions. Not to say that there was never any sort of forced politeness in the service industry where a waitress sort of has to be nice to you in order to get a, get a tip. But I think we're going through this massive sea change in terms of like how we consume things. And it's going by so quickly that I, it's easy to not take it in or appreciate that difference and how it's it's becoming really depersonalized and it's yeah, one size fits all who says that you have to listen to it i mean you know i that's always my that's always the the very simple question that i wonder about but then you don't it, participate at all right i know but i mean like it's, it's, <laughs> all, it's isolating it's also sort of it can be isolating if you aren't around people who feel the same way yeah i don't know i mean you know i i, I all i know is that people are always telling you suggestions or you know hints or directives about what to pay attention to are always present they always have been they're just delivered they have different delivery systems now the delivery systems are kind of like not just different but they're also ubiquitous and constant but then somehow linked but who cares you can i mean you can read it that's participating right you know and then and then choose to ignore it yeah. <laughs> it just seems like <laughs> I don't. I, it's hard for me to subscribe to the idea that it's like you know changing the hard wiring of our brains or something like that. I just think that it's different. Something that to me seems like a bigger change, though, in terms of the relationship with images, is this shift from knowing images, moving images. We're talking about here, you know, primarily on thirty-five millimeter and sixteen millimeter then getting used to them on television, which were, you know, when I was growing up, generally transfers of 16 millimeter prints. Mm -hmm. That was, those were the TV prints. Then the VHS image, which was really, really rough. I mean, not fun when you look back on it. And there's no reason to have a special fondness for VHS the way that I know some people do, because it's just a complete degradation of, right. you know, <laughs> anything. And P.S., every time you put it through the machine, it would just get a little bit worse, exactly. you know. Um, yeah. And then Laserdiscs, DVDs, Blu-rays, and then, of course, the transition to digital, you know, no matter whether a film is shot on film or not, it's, you're going to be looking at it, you know, digitally. It's changed what you expect now. The digital image has really changed what you expect to be looking at so that it weirds people out to see green, I think. Oh, totally. You know. In, in, I mean, and then there's like digital grain sometimes too, which I think which is, is really, <laughs> if it's not done properly, extremely alienating. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're looking at the first pass of it, for instance, or the way that it's done, I think that the way that it's done for iTunes is very different from the way that it's done for a Blu-ray, and it depends on who's doing it too. Right. But also, film grain has changed; it's become much finer, and so you can't do the kinds of things that Gordon Willis or film a Sigmund used to be able to do. So these are things that are really like, you know, that's that's a real um, shift. It's a change at every step of the process. Yeah. But I think um, to invoke Mr. Lynch again on a special feature that was actually for Inland Empire mm. that's been excerpted and put online and like well circulated despite the fact that mm. most people really don't give a shit, which is, uh, you know, you think you're watching a movie on a fucking phone. Mm. You're wrong. That's mm. sad. And it's mm. like, well, you really weren't watching on a VHS either. If it was like kind of panned and scanned or if mm -hmm. it was squished or degraded or, but it's still great to watch. It's still great to be able to have access to these things. So the yes. idea that there are these levels is sort of silly sometimes. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I remember when back in the early 80s when, you know, there was a thing at New Video called Rent-A-Beta. <laughs> and if nobody, you know, if, if Friday night came around and there was one left around, my friend and I would grab it and we would grab some movies and we would, go, we would say, oh, hey, look, you know, Days of Heaven is in. Look, Apocalypse Now. So we go home and hook it up to the little 13-inch black and white TV and watch <laughs> a panned and scanned, you know, version of yeah. Apocalypse Now and be like, "This is awesome," you know. And, so, <laughs> and and I mean, you know, can I say that it was like, you know, that I wasn't watching the movie? No, not really. I was watching the choices, the aesthetic choices that were made. You know, the general visual idea. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, you can't really hear the sound, but you can hear the idea of the sound. I mean, it's just like you're getting something. It's not like some. You know, I don't. I don't think that it's that it's right to get moralistic about it, yeah. and you know the way that like Sirius Danae would when he was trying to decide 
definitively what it is that you're watching. It's never definitive. It's always a transitional thing. It's just that as so many generations go by and you have people who become further and further removed from the experience of seeing something on a big screen, then you're talking about a real change. Right. Now I felt like I feel like some the most important experiences I had watching movies growing up were on VHS. That's just a matter of chance. It's just a matter of circumstance. Um, 2001 A Space Odyssey on videotape in my living room on a 20-inch screen, maybe, the first time I saw mm -hmm. it, first 10 times I saw it. That's no less important to me than when I first saw it at the Astro Theater. Yeah, the Astro Plaza. Yeah, the Astro Plaza, which was way, way down on, in Times Square. Yeah, 42nd. 44th. 44th. It was one of the last things they showed before they closed. They did this yeah, New I Year's. Yeah, I went to that as well. <laughs> yeah, 2001 um, on 70. Yep. Sure, screening. It was incredible. It was, it was, it was a revelation. Mm -hmm. But when I first saw 2001 on the tiny screen with my mom, it was a more of a revelation because I was getting it. It was mm -hmm. being communicated to me emotionally. So it, it, the format um, certainly matters, but it doesn't really dictate your emotional response to something. That's quite true. I, I absolutely agree. I think that you're, you know, cinemas always function on impurity. That's, mm -hmm. you know, that, that impurity has been very, very productive. Mm -hmm. So it's just sort of like, you know, now it really isn't so much anymore, I think, or less so. But I think it was for a long time. And I mean, you know, I, I all kinds of stuff, you know, that was that I saw on television, those were revelatory moments for me too, you know, seeing it on a big screen is another kind of experience, but mm -hmm. it's because of, it's the element of first contact. It is. I mean, the first time I saw The Shining was the 8 o'clock movie on Channel 56, mm -hmm. and it was three hours because it had lots of commercials. Yeah. <laughs> Did Probably it. missed significant chunks and of the things, things were missing. cut out yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's true, mm. but when I think of The Shining, which I've seen 30 times since in many different ways, I think of that first time I watched it because mm. it really really changed things for me it's also where you're seeing something who you're seeing it with what the company is you know I mean it's, you know Marty's talking about seeing Paisan with his family and watching the expressions on the, watching them watch the movie that's a very important thing and that's a very common thing I think for a lot of people because that's a big part of what we call cinephilia I know for me, you know, it was like understanding, watching certain movies and having an understanding of the life that my grandparents led, the life that my, my parents led, the things that they couldn't talk about or wouldn't necessarily even think to talk about, mm -hmm. the texture of the life that's approximated in, in certain movies. And mm -hmm. These are important things. Right, like exactly, watching movies with, with my mom and mm -hmm. talking about the movies, but then mm -hmm. also when the movie was made, mm -hmm. when she first saw it, right. mm -hmm. did she see it with her mother? Mm -hmm. What did this movie star mean to you growing up? Mm -hmm. These are all mm -hmm. tied up in my understandings of films. You know, the first real cinephile project of my life was, was when I got this big hardcover Oscar book. You know, it, it would just had all the nominations written in it. And then I would go through them and I would ask mm -hmm. my mother what every single thing was. And every night we would sit around and open the book and it was like, this is 1944. And, you know, we could talk about how Oscars are ridiculous and they are, but if you look at the lineup, if, and all the, I'm talking about below the line categories, everything, you'll see a lot of the important movies are listed yeah. here. Yeah. So I would go through them and ask, and, and her, she being somebody who loved movies, she had often seen most of them and knew what they were. Mm -hmm. So she was communicating that to me. So uh, every movie has a history that has very little to do with when you first saw it. It, it, has, it, has, it goes back and back and back. I watched a lot of videos with my dad. So that's you know one one line of history. I tended to watch a lot of movies on television with my mom, and those are that's another you know little environment. And then and then you have the movies that you rent rented with a group of friends, mm. <laughs> movies that you weren't supposed to watch or yeah. were supposed to watch. Mm. So the experience of renting a movie that you're not supposed to watch is a little different than sneaking into a theater to see a movie you weren't yeah. supposed to watch. Mm. So. Yeah, being transgressive and watching something like knowing you're not supposed to watch it but watching it anyway. It can make a very bad movie seem the best thing <laughs> in the world. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that was made that was made possible by ha having a TV and VCR in your bedroom. Exactly. <laughs> that no, was a, that, and that was a big big. That shift. wasn't something that was that, that that's something that started later. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So <laughs> that's you missed out on this. I had a combo thirteen and a half inch TV VCR. Oh and man, those and combos. So because I would want to <laughs> see these movies like the right way, but watching a letterbox movie on that size of a screen. 
might be an inferior way to see those movies. <laughs> Just might. Like, like pretty, you have to get pretty close to watch them. Do you feel like what you would collect and what you would follow as these different formats went along, did that sort of change? Or is it just sort of like, well, I got it on, I had it on VHS. I have to replace my VHS with a DVD. I need to replace my DVD with a Blu-ray or I need to just replace my DVD with a a digital file. There's a certain critic. I did, you know, I won't mention names, but I remember he was just mortified by DVDs. He's like, I'm not interested in that kind of watching. In other words, he was sticking to the idea of, you know, sharing the sharing of like bootleg videotapes and, um, you know, the kind of crying of Watt 49, <laughs> you know, thing. And, um, you know, I, it's a, it, it, on the one hand, you can say it's been an upward, it's an upward arc from VHS to Laserdisc to, you know, um, DVDs to Blu-rays. Um, to you know, high def files, no matter how they're delivered. I mean, and and it is obviously. If I have a Blu-ray of White Heat that's been very carefully done by Warner Brothers, you know, and I'm looking at it on a good screen and not a plasma, you know, where it mm-hmm. can't really control the, you know, what the, the the look of the screen and everything comes out looking like, you know, a football game. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I if I that obviously I'm not going to say get nostalgic for my old VHS tape. On the other hand, when you have situations like the one with Barry Lyndon, mm. where you have decisions that are not aesthetically driven, but that are economically driven based on the contention that, well, we never made any money off of that one. Mm-hmm. So A, we're going to fit it into the screen, which means that we're not going to honor the 1.66 aspect ratio, which he said he wanted in a fax that he sent in 1975, you know, <laughs> to every single projectionist in the world that he could reach. Oh, um, that's, that's posted up here. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> in and, the production and, booth. And it's and it's rightfully so. And then on the other hand, unless I'm mistaken, maybe perhaps the color values, but definitely the grain structure of that movie is altered. And so it's like Barry Lyndon, Stanley Kubrick, the grain structure and the shape of the frame is altered. Okay, well then why do I want to watch that? He did a DVD, you know, of it where, you know, obviously it's not as sharp, but then on the other hand, it's his aspect ratio. He created an aspect ratio for it, <laughs> 1.59 to 1. And, I mean, you know, the grain is all there. They degrained Eyes Wide Shut, I think, in the Blu-ray. You know, it's a film where the grain is just, like, alive. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, those are questions that are worth asking. I don't want to open up a whole new topic right at the end, but I was just kind of interested if there were like directors whose profile was kind of raised at different points, different yeah. changes, you know, like in, for early, early video was there either by recommendation or just by its availability, even by happenstance, by some rights agreement more so than another director right. became more prominent. I mean, was that sort of thing? Do you remember that? Or is it? No, was because it the random? stuff that was dis- that, that was coming out on video was the stuff that was known. Yeah, uh-huh. you know, I mean, this is something that Dave Kerr's always said, which is the idea that like everything is available. Well, not really. It's just like, right. Yeah, you know, it's more or less right. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's. Yeah, and I was gonna I was gonna say that I I, I don't remember VHS ever being auteur driven or like the releases of VHS being auteur driven. That was thing I remember discovering later, um, and maybe that was just that time period as well in the eighties. But I mean, I remember a well, lot about of Rolling Thunder. Well, that was the '90s. I'm like, like throughout the '80s, I remember like the Betty Davis collection. I mean, I they guess. they were they were very they were very right. star driven. They were they were still they were yeah. they were the popularity and stars, um, as I recall. Yeah. Well, the tourism. I mean, that's never going to be a driving factor in the commercial. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's just true. Like but it's I mean, I even only when it's even deemed of use. The vid- I mean, the videotapes. Of, I mean, maybe Kubrick didn't have the cachet yet that he, at that point that he does now, perhaps. But the videotapes for Barry Lyndon and the Shining didn't even really have his name prominently on them. I mean, no. it's it's because it, those it were just both considered failures. Or well, The Shining bad. wasn't, but Barry Lyndon was. Yeah, I mean, I, I just yeah, the video box art of The Shining. It was about Jack Nicholson, right? And you could yeah. see Kubrick's name if you looked really closely, but th- that wasn't the marketing. Whereas later on, it, his profile had been perhaps raised in the critical community by the time DVDs came out. But by the time those movies were available on DVD, it was the Kubrick collection. And his right. name was gigantic right. on, the, on the label. They had a special uh, trailer that would show the movies cut together to this music. I remember because yeah. that was when I was working at the video room. Yeah. And we had that trailer and we had that poster. 
and oh, I yeah. grabbed. But that happened after he died. Yeah. I don't remember. I don't remember too many VHS collections. I mean, you couldn't really. You could do it with TV shows or something like that. But I mean, that's something that kind of happened. Mm-hmm. Kind of came later. Um, I think that one thing that's important with Blu-rays. I mean, this is something that. Jeffrey O'Brien, you know, says, I mean, he's looking at a Blu-ray of, like, let's say, The Chase, you know, mm-hmm. the 46 movie um, with Cummings. And, you know, he's like, I, it's just like I've never seen it before. You know, if you're seeing something that you're used to seeing time and time again, crappy 16-millimeter prints or VHS tapes taken from crappy 16-millimeter prints or on... Channel 13 broadcasts on Saturday night that are done, drawn from crappy 16 millimeter prints, and then suddenly, you know, somebody's gone back to the original elements and you know delivering something that looks pristine. You realize, well, in many ways, you really haven't seen it before, and that goes for bigger movies too. I mean, you know, yeah. it's it's interesting to watch Giant now that it's been, you know, photochemical restoration did great things, but once digital tools were used, and this is a late 90s thing with. Um, Matinee Idol, the Frank Capra movie, was the first film I remember where they really used it and it made a difference. You're, you're able to do things that just weren't possible before. So Giant was a movie that was really severely compromised, but to see it properly restored now, it's a different experience. Mm. I mean, it's also interesting just even things that aren't restored based upon, they, they can come and go. It's strange that things... That's just kind of the history of cinema is that people, things bobbing above the surface and going below. Mm-hmm. It's true. You know, one yeah. thing after another. I mean, yeah. I mean, even, you know, anything from like a bigger director like that. Or I'm just thinking this because we have a review of Midnight Run on Blu-ray. But that was like a big video hit. Mm. And then and then all of a sudden it's like a rediscovery. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, I don't know. Like yeah. that sort of, I mean, that's just a total random, you know. Well, it's well, also marketing. It has a new label. Yeah. But I think yeah. But I think because everything is available, because there's this myth of availability, anything is ripe for rediscovery. Because yeah. your attention is being pulled in so many different directions that it's like, hey, remember this? Don't you remember this? Oh my God, well, it's finally back, you know? Well, it's also easy to get those to pitch those articles and get them written about now. So you can exactly. call anything anything now because well, people are looking yeah, for nonstop right. content. Yeah, it's, it's like, like it's hey, like, remember Hocus Pocus? That little movie that no one ever heard of, Hocus Pocus? It's back. It's the 20th anniversary. Like, like, come on. Commodified amnesia. Oh, totally. You know, it is. It really, it very much is. The other day I saw this article on a Lady Mag website that will go nameless. And it was like, uh, here's 29 movies from the 90s that you forgot about. Why would anyone forget about them? And it's like, because they were shit. Like never know. There's no good reason and I'm to remember sure these movies. that people did not forget them. They're probably yeah. relatively big movies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're like what? Like the the picture, like the lead picture was of uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. It was like the man in the Iron Mask. I remember like, him. I, re- I remember. Yeah, it's like oh yeah, that little weird actor that you never hear of, Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, whatever happened to him? But yeah, I guess we can close on that note of cynicism. But the only other thing to add that you know you didn't talk about is the websites where you can share files and download stuff that which is where people grab a lot of stuff yes. that we're not supposed to talk about i know but, yeah i know i don't know. want to incriminate anybody yeah but, but you know that's a very common thing and there's a lot of stuff that's shared that way and then you know you can download yeah. the subtitle files and you know sync them up with yeah you know with some assuming the subtitles file exists sometimes a lot of them do no i know right Oh, I've heard that sometimes people have trouble finding them in English. <laughs> I've heard that. There are also a lot of movies that turn up just un- unexpectedly on iTunes that are really, not to harp on George Stevens and, you know, to extend the conversation to, you know, much further, but, you know, I was talking about Giant before and then he made a movie in the early 50s that was, you know, really kind of unknown. I mean, you know, it was mm-hmm. forgotten, called Something to Live For, and it's just it was only available in these kind of crummy versions for a long time and now it's you know looks great big and beautiful on itunes but again speaking to the file sharing aspect (laughs) things can be put out there as a digital file and be circulated but if there aren't people sharing it 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 ceases to exist that's right exactly so i think and i think that's something very crucial let's say many years ago there was an article that appeared in film comment called the black crow blues that sort of missed out on that point which is that it is a community whether you know you mean even, Teen's article yes yeah. he's complaining and he's like oh i have to oh, i have to like keep my computer on all the time and share the files and it's like yes yeah, because if you don't it doesn't exist and it's it's an anonymous form of community there are certain file sharing sites that have very rigorous rules mm. but ultimately 
absolutely they are rooted in goodness in that you know you have to participate you have to give something back you know even if it is like your electricity bill is a little higher this month because you kept your computer on to keep these yeah. things going like You've it given is back to the community yeah mm -hmm. there are many ways to take that but anyway <laughs> <laughs> so could we quickly go around and say a movie that we saw recently that we liked I saw Roadhouse, which is out on Blu-ray on a blu -ray now. It looks mm. very nice. Uh, with, uh, Patrick Swayze is amazing in that. <laughs> <laughs> he is. He is. He's just a force of nature. Um, Ida, Ida Lupino is in it, and she plays like a piano player from Chicago who, who comes into, supposed to be in Montana, I think, in a small town that where the there are basically two places. There's the Roadhouse, and there's the hotel where Ida Lupino stays, and then they go to a watering hole little... But uh, obviously, she, she used what stood out for me in that movie. I mean, Widmark is, a, is amazing as well. And, and, uh, but she, she I, I'm, I'm almost amazed by how she slows down the movie around her whenever mm. she's speaking and just wraps it around herself and, and continues to do so throughout the movie, even when the, the script a little is sort of kind of abandoning her later on. Uh, and, uh, but uh, she's just a, an amazing presence. You, and you feel when she's talking, because she's kind of supposed to be this you know, rebellious character, just the way she's wrestling with, with that rebelliousness and is, uh, it's just was wonderful. No surprise because she's amazing, but uh, mm. well worth seeing. Um, this is always your hardest question, Violet. I know. And the reason is because my short-term memory is not good. But I, can, <laughs> but I can think about the things I saw when I was five or six. Um, that um, your... <laughs> so I think like, what the hell did I watch this week? Um, I guess I'll just... I, something that I loved is something I've seen a million times. I just watched the upcoming Criterion edition of Cat People. Um, yeah. Of course, you know, it's one of the great films of all time. The film is so well known for the standalone sequences that everyone talks about that I tried to focus on the other stuff this mm -hmm. time. Not the big scare scenes, you know, not the, 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 more, the more shadowy, silent scenes. I, I try to focus on the actual sadness of it and the oh, it, totally. it's 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 actually a really empathetic kind of fascinating beautiful movie it's an amazing film every time i watch it what it does in 72 minutes is more than what most movies can do and double that so well it's funny i think i think what makes those like you say that sadness i think and the strangeness is i think cronenberg whether or not that is really a thing but that's totally present in his films too i think that weirdness and the sadness and the there's a little body horror in uh, Cat People now. <laughs> well, certainly. But certainly. I mean, the, the, I would say, okay, then there's a tenderness yes. that I don't necessarily see in Cronenberg. But it's one of those movies that doesn't matter how many times you watch it. There's something incredible every time. Mm. Uh, there's a movie that I've somehow had never seen, and I just took a look at it. It's called The Great O'Malley. Mm. It was made in 1937. The William Dieterly at Warner Brothers, Pat O'Brien and Ann Sheridan and Bogart. And it's a neighborhood movie. And Dieterly, you know, came out of the Max Reinhardt, you know, access. And it's got a very European feeling to it. And the street scenes are all shot in the Warner Brothers backlot, but they have a feel to them that's very, very different. They've got a lot of activity in the background and all the people moving through them look like somebody really paid attention to casting the right faces and you know transitions are interesting and it's about a cop played by you know pat o'brien an irish cop who knows the law so well that he writes tickets to people for everything from their awnings hanging mm. too low to you know they're failing to get their cars fixed and he writes bogart a ticket when he's on his way to his new job and therefore he loses the job and therefore he resorts to stealing and therefore you know um, the second half of the movie is utterly ridiculous. <laughs> and, you know, I have a feeling that what happened was that it was probably something quite different. And then, you know, they, they forced to change. Somebody forced to change. But it was a pretty striking movie. The test cards came back very harsh. I don't think it was the test cards. <laughs> I think it was, you know, somebody at the studio looking at it and saying, no, you can't do yeah. this. But It was what year? 37. So it was the same year as Emil Zola. So yeah, that was exactly. Busy. Um, I, I, I just want to advocate for a Dieterle major detailly retrospective well, at some point. It was interesting. I, I mean, Portrait of Jenny is... Portrait of Jenny is great, but that's not... Yeah. Devil and Daniel Webster also. I, love, yeah, I, I adore, yeah. adore them. Portrait of Jenny had a lot of a lot of hands in the... Oh, you can tell. A lot of cooks in the kitchen. But still, oof, it's a great movie. What's left? Yeah. 
Um, and then to close, I saw, because I had never seen it, Magic Mike XXL. I didn't really care for the first one. Well, first of all, I went to see it in that theater in Chelsea where they were like, oh, there's going to be male strippers there. But because I went with uh, two friends of mine on a weekday, there were no male strippers. So we were sort of primed to not like it. Um, and then the actual movie, there was not that much. Because we, we were sold a false bill of goods. We went specifically there. Not even head of lettuce? And nothing. <laughs> I was sort of shocked because, like, everyone was talking about, oh, there's so much nudity, there's so much dick, and blah, 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 and there really was not. There really was not. And I was like, well, is this, like, you just get a little glimpse and, like, that sets you, like, into this frenzy. And so I felt like, but I know, I'm sorry, I don't care. These are my grievances against the first one. Second one, holy shit, did it deliver. That was excellent. Excellent, excellent, excellent from beginning to end. Loved it, laughed a ton because again, because I was watching it not at a theater, I could pause it and and like fully just laugh. We don't want to know what no, parts you no, paused. No, 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 just to laugh, just to laugh. I would watch it on I watched it on a plane actually, uh, so I really like again. There's so limit. you were maniacally laughing and bothering the passengers on the oh, plane. Oh yes, yes, it's terrible. Yes, <laughs> they were forced to move you to first class. <laughs> Hot tip. <laughs> the part where they're at the big um, convention and they're like, they're doing the Twilight striptease and they're like, let her make her own decisions. Like, I just lost it. So, highly recommend that for people who saw it. And, even, you know, if you didn't like the first one, uh, this one's much better. So I saw it on a VHS <laughs> way back when. <laughs> just wanted to bring it full circle. <laughs> well, thank you all for coming. This was excellent. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. This was fun. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Odemark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.